Please bow with me and pray as we prepare to hear God's Word. Lord, we ask that you would humble us to hear your word. Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us to obey you and your word. We pray that this would be a time of corporate worship together where with one mind and one heart we would humbly submit to the truth of your word. And Lord, we ask you to fill us with joy as we hear. Lord, fill us with with joy for what you've already done through your son Jesus. Lord, fill us with hope that looks forward to what you've yet to do, what you've promised to do, and sending Jesus to return back to earth, to finish off his work of salvation that he's already paid for through his death on the cross. Lord, may we look forward in hope and be strengthened in that hope this morning as we hear your word. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen me to faithfully preach your word, to preach what is true, to preach clearly that Christ would be exalted. Lord, we, we pray this morning that we would all be shepherded by King Jesus Lord, I pray that you would help me to shepherd this people here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, can you name all of your great-grandparents? All eight of them. What do they do for a living? I have a conscious memory of two of them. So two. My great-grandmother, she lived until I was about five, one of them. My other great-grandmother, she lived until I was in the 10th grade. She was born in 1899. I got to hear a lot of stories from her. I was fascinated by the stories. She told me of growing up and working in a textile mill in Marion, North Carolina, the foothills of the mountain. Uh, Growing up, I was fascinated to hear stories that she didn't have electricity in her home or running water and didn't even as a parent raising her kids. And I was fascinated by that. My kids uh, still have the blessing of having one of their great-grandparents. In fact, she was here just a few weeks ago for Charlotte's baptism. Uh, 91 years old, and I get her to tell them stories all the time of, of her life. But think about this. Can you name more than one or two? I, I can't. Can you name all eight, what they did for a living? It's a humbling thought to consider that you and I, after just three generations, will be forgotten by our own family. They won't know our names. They won't know what you did. That promotion that you're about to get, they will never know you got it. All the money you earned, all the possessions you have, they'll, they'll be gone, which I think points us to wisdom. I think it highlights there must be something greater in life than possessions and achievement. There must be something greater to give our lives to, even than a large family, as much of a blessing as that is. There must be something greater to live for than merely what we see around us. This city, this land, this life, worldly treasure. You see, it matters most that you and I live by faith. It matters most that our faith is in Jesus Christ, that we trust God's promises in Christ, that we believe Him and His promises. It's the greatest blessing you can pass on to your future generations. It's a life marked by God and by His promises in Jesus Christ. And this morning, we finish off this semester in the book of Genesis. We're going to press pause, and we end here with a genealogy, a line of descendants from Esau, so his family tree. You know, the the author of Genesis, Moses, he was writing to the original audience, which we believe was the, the wandering nation of Israel, the wandering people there in the wilderness. They needed to know who their ancestors were. 
They needed to know Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the promises God had given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They needed to see the difference in the lives of their ancestor Jacob and Esau. They needed to know what it looked like to live a life founded in the promises of God and a life built apart from God's blessing, built on the promises of the present world. They needed to understand what it means to trust God, to trust His promises, and not to put your trust in the promises of the world. They needed to be exhorted to wait for God. He will surely do what He has promised. And don't you and I need the same this morning? And so we come to God's Word to be strengthened in our hope, to understand what it looks like to put our trust in the promises of God. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 36. If you want to use a pew Bible right in front of you, take that pew Bible, turn to page 30, page 30 this morning. And if you've come this morning, if you don't own a Bible, we want to give that Bible to you. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take a copy of God's Word home to read it, to connect with someone here to read the Bible. So that's our gift to you. But I'd like to ask everyone to turn. Genesis 36 this morning, we're going to be in a genealogy. And so it's going to be a little bit different of a passage and therefore a little bit different way I'm going to approach the passage this morning. So I want to give you the main idea right up front here. If you're taking notes, the main idea of Genesis 36, and we'll actually go through verse 1 of chapter 37. The main idea is this, God's people walk by faith and patience as we wait for His promises to unfold. God's people walk by faith and patience as we wait for His promises to unfold. Let me give you a little bit of a context for what we see here in chapter 36. This is the ninth of ten main sections in the book of Genesis. So we've pointed out that there's an intentional structure in the book of Genesis, ten toledotes or generations. This is the ninth of ten generations. If you look there in verse 1 of chapter 36, you see that familiar phrase, these are the generations of. So the ninth time that we've seen this. And this is the generations of Esau, the older twin brother of Jacob. But he was not the brother that God chose to inherit the promises that were made to Abraham. Rather, Esau's younger brother Jacob was the one that God chose, saying that the older shall serve the younger. Now, we just saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 35, Jacob's 12 sons, the 12 tribes that would become Israel, listed at the end of that chapter. That was the beginning of the nation of Israel. And here in chapter 36, we see the line of Esau's descendants. This chapter contains 73 names. Now, we've seen genealogies like this before in the book of Genesis, and this is, if if we're honest, probably the section of Scripture in our Bible reading we're tempted just to, to gloss over and skip through and get on to the story. But we understand that this genealogy, and all of them in Genesis and throughout the Old Testament, they're not given merely to be informative or to test if we can pronounce really hard names in Hebrew. They are there to move the story forward. And in fact, they serve as a, as a, they have a teaching purpose. There's a teaching purpose point to these genealogies. Through this genealogy here, we see the contrast between two ways to live. We see a contrast between a life built on the promises of this world, and then in chapter 37, verse 1, a life built on the promises of God. 
Now, with 73 hard-to-pronounce names contained here in this section, I'm going to read along as we go. I don't plan to read through every single name and verse, but I will offer comments on every section of this chapter. Now, as we make our way through 36 and the first verse of 37, for our outline this morning, I want you to see two ways to live. So we have a contrast here of two ways to live. The first way to live is in chapter 36. So point one, chapter 36, the first way to live, a life built on the promises of the world. It's the first way to live there in chapter 36, the way that most people live, a life built on the promises of the world. The last few chapters of Genesis, they've covered several decades, almost 30 years have passed, and we haven't seen much of of Esau. And that's because, like I mentioned, it was through Jacob that God's promise was at work. So the story has been zooming in in the book of Genesis on the life of, of Jacob. Well, what happened to Esau? Well, that's what this chapter tells us. We get one last view of Esau in 36. Now, God had promised to Esau's mother, Rebekah, back in chapter 25, that she would become the mother of two nations. And we see that fulfilled here in 36, that these two twins in her womb, they would become two distinct nations that would be divided. That's what God told her back in chapter 25. And we see God's Word fulfilled here in chapter 36. Well, let's look at verses 1 through 5. This beginning section of the genealogy actually gives us a narrative that makes it a very important point for us. Let me read verses 1 through 5. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ida, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Ahalabama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ida bore to Esau Eliphaz. Basimath bore Rule, and Ahalabama bore Jeush. Jalo and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. So here, simply put, Esau, three of his wives listed, five of his sons listed here. And one detail to notice, again, this serves a teaching purpose. In verse 2, we see Esau married Canaanite women. Now, back in chapter 24, And then again, in Isaac's words in chapter 28, we see that this was forbidden for Abraham's descendants. Abraham and Isaac had directed their sons to marry from among their people back in Paddan Aram. That's why Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for his son, and we see that Jacob traveled back to Paddan Aram to find a wife as well. The Canaanites, they were a godless people. They were idolatrous people. They were pagans. And we saw that they were a sexually perverse people, even back in chapter 34 in the city of Shechem. So so marrying them was forbidden because Abraham and his descendants were to worship the one true God, the God of Abraham as he revealed himself. This people, they worshiped idols. They lived in ways that were dishonoring to the one true God. And so they weren't to marry from the Canaanite women. What was at stake was the worship of God. Yet Esau wasn't really concerned about that. Esau didn't really care about that. He took wives from among the Canaanites anyways. Well, have you considered 
who you marry demonstrates what really matters to you. Who you marry demonstrates your values. And for Christians, who we marry has a lot to do with who we worship. We see throughout the Old Testament and New, a worshiper of God is only to marry another worshiper of God. Marriage is either for two believers in God or two unbelievers. God's common gift to humanity, so two unbelievers, it's a good thing to marry. But if you're a believer, you should only marry another believer. That's a consistent thread we see throughout the Old and New Testament. In the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, the Apostle Paul commands Christians, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And it certainly applies to marriage and is consistent with what we see throughout the pages of the Bible, right? Human marriage, the, the closest human relationship. 2 Corinthians 6.14, certainly addressing marriage. So as such, if you're a Christian, you should only marry another Christian. I think in keeping with that and wisdom, if you're a Christian, you should only date another Christian. You should only date someone who would be a good potential for marriage. See, who you date, and even more importantly, who you marry, demonstrates who you va- what you valued, who you worship demonstrated by a life of worship and wanting to join together with another worshiper of God. So what was at stake with marriage here in the book of Genesis was the worship of the one true God. Esau wasn't concerned with that. Esau didn't walk by faith. He walked by sight. He didn't live with any concern for God and His promises. He lived with a concern for this present world, a a cup of stew, a, a delicious meal. He lived according to His senses. Now consider this, Esau was born into Isaac's family. Right? Now Isaac wasn't perfect, but that was, a, that was a good family to be born into during that day and age. Abraham was your grandfather. I mean, that's a pretty good family to be born into. His father and his grandfather had God appear to them personally. I'm sure that Esau heard stories about that, just like fathers and grandfathers might have told you stories. I'm sure he heard stories about God appearing to them. He saw the faith of his father and his grandfather, yet that wasn't enough for him. You see, he didn't share that faith. It wasn't enough merely for him to be born into that family. His heart needed to be changed. Now, while he heard a lot about God, as he grew older, he wasn't really interested in God. He went on to build his life apart from God's blessing. He lived in a a worldly way. And he got what he was after. We'll see. He lived a pretty successful life. I mean, things were going well for Esau in a worldly sense. He, he gained the whole world, but like Jesus warned, he ended up losing his soul. You know, children and students here this morning, uh, you've got the blessing of having at least one of your parents who's a Christian. Many of you, both of your parents who are Christians. I had that blessing growing up. What a tremendous gift from the Lord that is. But you need to understand, while that's a blessing that you can thank God for, being born into a home with Christian parents is not enough to save you. Their faith is not enough to save you before the throne of God. You too must repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's what we want all of our children's ministries and student ministries to point to. 
We, we, we don't want you merely just to become familiar with Jesus, with His death and His resurrection, but rather to put your faith in Jesus and His death for your sins, if de- indeed you repent and put your trust in Him. And so a good thing to pray is to ask God to give you a greater desire for Him. Ask God to strengthen you, to put your faith in Him if you haven't already done so. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, ask God for His help to strengthen you. The blessing of having believers uh, as parents and the blessing of having church family here, that God would bring fruit in your life from that. Well, in verse 6, we observe an important transition in Esau's story. Let me read for us verses 6 through 8. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Sounds a lot like the separation of Abraham and Lot back in Genesis chapter 13. Here Esau, he he left the land of Canaan. He traveled away from his brother Jacob. He left the land of promise. He settled in Seir, which was, was east of Canaan, outside the land of promise. Now pay attention to that. Esau left the land of promise and he headed east. We've heard this phrase throughout the book of of Genesis. We pointed out that traveling east in the book of Genesis was traveling away from God's presence, traveling away from the promise of God. Adam and Eve, when they were banished from the Garden of Eden because of their sin against God, disobeying His command and rejecting His loving authority, they were banished. In which direction did they travel? East. We've looked at Cain. He, He was driven further east after he was cursed for murdering his brother, Abel. Lot, when he separated from Abraham, he headed east, and he settled in Sodom and Gomorrah. Here Esau left, and again we see this direction being traveled east, away from God's blessing. He has no interest in the promises of God. You see, Esau established his life outside of the land of promise, outside of God's blessing. Yet on the surface, things look pretty good. I mean, the picture here is is Esau has a lot of family. It's a good thing. Having a large family, especially in that day, was seen as being blessed. I know in our culture, in our society, having a large house uh, with not a whole lot of family is how a lot of people tend to view blessing. But in that day, having a long life and a large house was a sign of blessing from God. Things look good. He had a lot of possessions. He was rich. Life was good. And maybe even because of that, he just wasn't that concerned about God and His promises. The picture we get, he built a life apart from the blessing of God. By marrying women from the land of Canaan, by leaving the promised land, he showed that he had no share in the promises of God. And for Esau, that really is the end of the story. That, that's it. If that's what you want to get in life, material blessings, you'll probably get it. And that'll be it. And that'll be your life. That's the end of, of Esau's 
life. Sure, we've got the rest of the chapter, but the rest of the chapter really traces the generations from when he settled outside of the land of Canaan in the hill country of, of Seir. So consider Esau's story to gain wisdom. In a worldly sense, he was prospering. He had descendants. He had land. He was wealthy. Had so many possessions that he had to get more land to hold those possessions. Yet he lived his life far from God. He built his life on the promises of this world, not seeking God's promise, not seeking his presence. And this is a cautionary tale that it is possible to seem to be prospering. You have to live your life far from God and spiritually to be dead. Well, the rest of this genealogy of this chapter, it shows what Esau became once he went outside of the land of Canaan. We're just going to cover these sections. I'm going to make some observations for you. In verses 10 through 14, the list moves on to naming grandsons. So six sons from Eliphaz, four from Ruel, three from Ahalabama. His family is multiplying. That's the picture in verses 10 through 14. In verses 15 through 19, we see a list of chiefs descending from Esau. So these chiefs, they were the heads of, of tribes. In other words, his descendants were accumulating worldly power. They were growing into a a nation. Then in verses 20 through 28, again, we see a list of sons and grandsons. And then in verses 29 through 30, another list of of chiefs. That's a list there of those descending from Seir, the Orite. So it's it's a list basically of people, people that Esau conquered, the natives of the land, that when he settled there, they conquered them. In other words, the picture of invading and taking in their people, what's shown here is a a growing empire, political power, conquering land and people and becoming mighty on the earth. Continuing on in verses 31 through 39, we see a list of kings in the land of Edom. Eight kings are are listed, and it's mentioned there at the end of verse 31 that this was before any kings were given to Israel. So think about that. Jacob, Israel, zero kings, Esau, score eight, eight zero. He's up on his brother. Seems seems like he's winning, right? Eight kings already. Edom had a type of of worldly power and prestige long before Israel did. And then in verses 40 through 43, a final list of 11 chiefs arranged by dwelling places. So these were, were districts that the people of Esau, they were spreading out from. So we see Esau, he became a nation of power, land, and territory. He became a people with a lot of possessions. Again, in a worldly sense, the picture here is he seems to be prospering, becoming mighty and powerful and and rich. Now, Jacob became the nation of, of Israel. So far, all he has is 12 sons. That's all we've seen so far in the book of Genesis. But in this chapter, we see that Esau became a mighty nation the nation of of Edom. That's mentioned throughout the book. I've mentioned it several times, but seven times in this chapter, Edom is mentioned. And the point that's being made here is that Esau became a mighty nation, the nation of Edom. Now, as the story of the Old Testament unfolds, Edom aligns themselves as enemies against Israel. Later on in the book of Numbers, chapter 20, verses 14 through 21, the Edomites opposed Moses, 
During the Exodus travel out of Egypt, the Edomites would not let Moses and the people of Israel pass peacefully through their land. Even in this chapter, if you look back in verse 12, you see the birth of Esau's grandson, Amalek. The Amalekites likely coming from him. They were some of the most fierce enemies of the nation of Israel. They too attacked Israel during their Exodus journey in the wilderness. Later on in the Old Testament, when Saul became king of Israel, he battled against the Edomites. So did King David. And then in the New Testament, you might be familiar with the story of Matthew chapter 2. There was a king there, King Herod. King Herod, in an effort to try to kill Jesus, the promised Messiah, he declared that all boys around age two and under in the region of Bethlehem should be killed. You know, King Herod, you're probably familiar with his name from the Christmas story, he was an Edomite king, attacking the very blessing that Israel was awaiting from. The the picture that we, we see here, a king from the line of Esau trying to destroy the king of kings from Israel and Judah, Jesus Christ. Esau, he had no interest in God's promise. His descendants would end up opposing and becoming enemies of God's promise. The contrast, Jacob followed God. Esau followed his senses, what he could see, what he could taste. He walked not by faith in God and His promise. He walked by sight. What about you? Do you see that there's more to life than money, career, marriage, family, a big house. There's more to life than summer vacations. There's nothing wrong with those things. We need to be careful, though, that we don't build our life upon them. We need to be careful, though, that we don't start to pursue them. Jesus has told us in Matthew 6, 24, that you can't serve both God and, and money. Whatever money God chooses to give us, however much in your bank account or however little you feel right now, God's given it to you. It belongs to Him, and we're called to spend it for His glory. You see, these genealogies, they serve as a teaching point. They're not merely informative. They they make a point, and the main point here, don't build your life on the promises of this present world. Don't build a life apart from God's blessing. Esau cared more about the promises of this world than he did about the promises of God. And it's possible to have what appears to be a good life, to be respected by your co-workers and your neighbors and your family members, to seem to be prospering, to have family and money and land and buying bigger houses to hold more possessions. It's possible to seem to be prospering and yet to live far from God. That is not the good life. That is not a blessed life. We can receive material blessings that God gives us. We can thank Him for them. Brother and sister in the Lord, let us pursue the greatest blessing. The greatest blessing, the presence of God. The greatest blessing, knowing God more. And whatever it is that's getting in the way, that we're getting entangled in, may by God's grace, may He help us to become untangled. May we help one another lovingly to become untangled from affairs with this present world, to live for the glory of God. You see, there's an eternally dangerous place to be in life. And that's a place where you can live a nice life, like here in the city of Charlotte, have an amazing home that's fashioned after HGTV shows, have a beautiful family with pictures of fantastic vacations to fill up an Instagram feed, have a great job uptown at the bank, eat at the newest restaurants in Plaza Midwood, 
and then post about it. Spend weekends at the mountains and beach and then eventually buy a home there because it's better than paying rent for Airbnb. Have a life that's full of adventure and possessions and building your life on all those things, seeming all the while to be thriving and prospering at the whole time living your life far from God. That is not a blessed life. That's not the type of blessing that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. You can have all of that and be building your life apart from God's blessing. You know, the danger is that if you aim to gain the world, you will probably get it. Worldly ambition oftentimes is realized. That's the danger in it. You'll probably get it, and that's all you'll have. And then your life will be over. That will be your reward, a temporary, earthly reward that won't last in this life and that you surely cannot take with you in the next. Jesus put it like this in Matthew 16, verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Esau's life provides a cautionary tale to not build your life apart from God's blessing. I wonder this morning, which promises do you live for? The promises of this present world or the promises of God? We're all born in the world. We're all born sinful and separated from God. There has to be a moment in your life where you turn away from the world, meaning the world system, a way of living apart from God, where you repent of sin and turn away from sin and self in this world and put your trust in Jesus Christ and His death on the cross as payment for your sins and His resurrection from the dead that you might find new life to live for the glory of God, to live in obedience and worship and service to the one true King, to live your life now for what matters most, to live with whatever possessions God's given you. I'm not trying to hate on you if you have a mountain house or a beach house. That's not the point here. The Bible breaks it down between godly rich and ungodly rich, godly poor and ungodly poor. The point is that you would be godly, that your life would be centered around God and His glory. If you're here this morning and you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, the time to turn and trust God and His promises is now. This life is quickly fleeting, and we would love to talk with you more. If someone invited you this morning, talk with them more about what it would look like to put your trust in God, to receive Christ and what God's promised in His Son, Jesus, or come to any of the doors afterwards. Our pastors will be there, but also members of our church. Let's guard our hearts. There are so many distractions and temptations and places that we can fall away that might seem respectable and acceptable and okay. And let's ask God to guard our hearts. We live in an awesome city. It's a city where there's a lot of wealth. There's a lot of life to be lived here. And we want to live in this city for the city that is yet to come, for the city of God. We want to be God's people here living for His glory. May we together pray and ask God to help us guard our hearts. And the way we know that we'll live for the glory of God is that we're walking in obedience to God's commands together. He's given us the gift of this local church body together to walk in obedience to God, to be sharpened and shaped by one another, to have wisdom and help from one another. 
And let's ask God for the wisdom to engage that this church body in that way, that we would seek to finish this race of faith together. Let's consider a second way to live. It's just one verse. Second way to live, the way God's people live, in chapter 37, verse 1, a life built on the promises of God. We see a second way to live, a life built on the promises of God. Even though a new chapter begins, verse 1 of chapter 37, it fits structurally as a conclusion to what we just saw in chapter 36. So what we read in verse 1 here contrasts Jacob's life with that of his older brother Esau. So in chapter 36, we saw Esau leaving the promised land of Canaan, heading away from God's presence and his promises. Contrast that with what we see of Jacob here in chapter 37, verse 1. Let's read verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings and the land of Canaan. Now, for a good while, Jacob had fled the promised land of Canaan. He, he fled his brother Esau, who was seeking retribution, trying to kill him. And he also fled to go and find a, a wife among his father and grandfather's family there in Padanaram. He lived under the oppression of his uncle Laban for a while, while Esau all the time was living in the promised land. Well, the story changes right here. Esau now leaves the promised land, and Jacob is dwelling in the land of promise as a sojourner, just like Isaac and Abraham. Esau exits the land. Jacob and his descendants occupy it. He made his home in the land of Canaan. What that's saying is he lived his life by faith in God's promise. Jacob was God's chosen one. Esau was passed over. God chose Jacob to accomplish his will on earth. And verse 1 brings this section of Scripture to a conclusion by contrasting Esau and Jacob. Again, which one looks greater? Looking at chapter 36, it may seem like Esau won. You see a growing empire, chiefs, eight kings coming from him long before Israel had a, a single king. Jacob, on the other hand, as I mentioned so far, all we've seen listed was back in chapter 35. He has 12 sons. He's sojourning, kind of not even having like a permanent home there. No chiefs listed, no kings, no expanding land or empire to rule. He was sojourning in the land of Canaan. At first glance, Esau seemed to have made it. Yet God was at work in Jacob. Sure, Esau has this long line that fills an entire chapter. But the rest of Genesis, that Lord willing, we will get to starting in August, chapter 37, verse 2, the rest of the book of Genesis dedicated to the generations of Jacob. Esau, one chapter. Jacob, 13. 13 to 1, all right? It took a while to catch up. It took a while for the score to change. But it's a picture of living patiently and waiting for God's promise to unfold. You see, the promise that God made to Jacob, it would be fulfilled. In God's plan, according to His will, it would unfold slowly. It would require great faith and patience from Jacob and his family to wait and wait for the land God promised them. And to wait and to experience hardship in this life and to keep waiting, waiting in anticipation. You know, at this point in Genesis, you can look forward and hope. And you can consider if eight kings came from Esau, 
how much greater would the descendants of Jacob be? God had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that their descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky. If eight kings, a tremendous royal line, came from Esau, how much greater the kings that would come in Israel? Indeed, the rest of the story of the Bible would trace Jacob's descendants through his son Judah to King David, to King Solomon, to the King of Kings, Jesus. Ultimately, all of this points to Jesus. Through his death and his resurrection from the dead, all nations are blessed just like God promised Abraham. Jesus, the Son of God, the King of Kings from the line of Judah, secured descendants for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob by laying his life down to die on the cross as a purchase and a payment to redeem people for God. He was the promised serpent crusher from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He was the one they had been waiting for all this time. No one could possibly do what Jesus did. Fully God, fully man. His death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, finally securing the victory over Satan and sin and death. His finished work on the cross. And it's not over yet. We've been talking about, even from Easter forward, that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you immediately are freed from the penalty of sin, and you're freed from the dominion of sin, the power of sin over you, meaning you're no longer living as a slave to sin. But you and I, we struggle so much with the presence of sin. It is exhausting. We should be weary from it, and we should be reminded we're not home yet. We're almost home, hopefully sooner than we think, but we're not home yet. And we should be strengthened in hope. It only gets better in Christ. When we go to be with Him, or better yet, if He comes and returns before we die, they have sin, sadness, and death will be no more. All we want, we won't, we won't need faith anymore because faith will have received what was promised. We will behold by sight and live in the presence of the God who created us forevermore. That is so much better than a life built on the promises of this world. It is so much more valuable and worth giving our lives to. That which can never be taken away from us. Live your life today in a way that prepares for and anticipates that great day. You see, while Jacob lived by faith and he remained in the promised land, the story isn't over, though, for Esau's descendants. There is no story like the story of the Bible. You couldn't think to write an ending like this. You just couldn't. The amazing story of God's grace in the Bible is that God's salvation would come through Jesus from the line of Jacob, and it would be for all people of all nations, even the Edomites. Even the Edomites get the promises of God if they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation for all people, as many who, as who would repent and believe in Jesus, including those from the line of Esau. You see, in Genesis, Esau is rejected. He has no part in the promise. But as the story of God's salvation unfolds in the Bible, God makes a way for the descendants of Esau to be included in the people of God. Jesus Christ came to lay his life down on the cross as a payment for all who would repent and believe in him, including those from the line of Esau. You see, reconciliation between these two divided lines ultimately would be found in Jesus. 
We've been in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, ends with a picture of God's promises fulfilled. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, that day when Jesus Christ returns and He gathers to Himself all the nations that He died for, all the nations that He laid down His life and shed His blood as a payment for sin to purchase. They're gathered together in Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Does that sound familiar? You can't number the stars in the sky. You can't number the sand on the shore. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation. Does that sound familiar? Abraham was promised to become a father of a multitude of all nations, that all the families of the earth would be blessed in him from every nation, from all tribes and people, including the Edomites, from all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, the promise is being fulfilled right now. If, you've been put, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're a member of this church, you've been baptized upon that profession of faith, it's a profession. God's at work. Look at us You and I, most of us are not from the nation of Israel. We've been grafted in. The promise has come to us. We've been saved by God's grace. The gospel is going out to the nations. And this gathering this morning is evidence that God is at work. We're being made ready for that last day when Christ finally returns and gathers all who've trusted Him. This little verse at the beginning of chapter 37, don't miss it. It serves as a conclusion that shows God's promise, it had not yet been completely fulfilled in the life of Jacob. He and his descendants, they were in the land that was promised to them, dwelling as sojourners, travelers in the land. God would surely keep his promise. But as God's people, they would have to patiently wait in expectation and hope. They would have to walk by faith and patience, trusting God and his promise. And isn't that the way it is with you and I right now, Christian? If you put your faith in Jesus, you've been saved by God's grace, forgiven of your sins, saved from the penalty of sin and the power of sin over you, secure in Jesus Christ. No one can ever snatch you out of the hand of Jesus Christ. His Holy Spirit dwelling in you right now as a deposit, as a guarantee that indeed you will finish the race, but you aren't home yet. We're still here. We're sojourning right now. Now, we're not in the promised land. We've said it a lot, right? Hopefully we understand that. The promised land is not here. It's not in Charlotte. We're on our way home. We're almost home, but we're not home yet. And therefore, we need to ask God to help us to wait patiently in expectation, to be strengthened in hope, to walk by faith, to trust God and His promise. What does it look like for you to walk patiently in faith? One way is you're here this morning. You're here on a Sunday morning, the morning that Jesus got up from the dead. You're here to hear about the Word of God. Every member of our church is here to grow and be strengthened in their faith. Keep giving yourself to what is going to strengthen you in your faith. If there's something that helped you grow as a Christian in years past, keep giving yourself to it. Keep giving yourself to time in the Word. Keep giving yourself to prayer. 
Keep giving yourself to proclaiming the gospel to those around you and evangelizing. Keep giving yourself to gathering corporately as a body. COVID has ravaged attendance throughout this church. Let's be honest, not this church, throughout the city of Charlotte. This church has been good about gathering. Throughout this city, let's be honest, a lot of people that haven't returned right now, it's not that they haven't returned out of concern. They've just not returned because they got used to not going. It's sad, and I talk to pastors every week that their churches are down 20 to 25% in this city. Don't stop giving yourself to what is going to help you grow and be strengthened in your faith. Don't stop giving yourself to obedience to God's commands. Keep praying, keep trusting, keep repenting, keep obeying, and guard against anything that would threaten your hope and the promises of God. Well, in conclusion, we see here one generation's dying off. Rachel, Isaac, Jacob, they'll no longer be the fake focus of the story. Joseph, from here on out, when we return, Lord willing, in the fall, people are dying, but God's promise isn't. One day, your life, my life will be over. Our story will be over. It'll be the next generation that gets focused on. Like I mentioned at the beginning, we'll be forgotten, even by our own family members one day. But if you're here today, your story is still going. Your story is still being written. What will it say? May it be said of us, like Jacob, that we lived in the land of Canaan. In other words, that we walked by faith in God. And if that's not your story here today when you came in, I hope it is by the time you leave. Let's bow and pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your help. We ask that you would strengthen us to walk by faith, to walk by patience, to strengthen our hope in you, and to wait for your promises to unfold. God, we pray that we would be encouraged this morning, that indeed you are faithful to your promise. We'd be encouraged, Lord, at how generous and good you've been to us, and that you would strengthen us this morning to trust your steadfast love towards your people. It is indeed your love that sustains us and causes us to endure until the end. So may we be encouraged by that love. May we be appropriately convicted of sin in our lives. Lord, we don't want to live by the promises of this world. And so we ask for your help, Lord, that we would not be entangled in them. And we pray this morning that you would renew our minds through what we've just heard in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.